You stand on the shore of the ocean watching the tide come in. You sense the call of the sea beckoning to take you further. You step forward little by little, not knowing what to expect, but expecting more. You keep going as the ocean calls, calls you to enter in to deeper waters. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Deeper Waters Podcast. I'm Nick Peters, your host, seeking to bring you the very best in Christian scholarship and projects. And today, we've got someone back on the show today who was actually one of the first guests that I had on the Deeper Waters Podcast early on. And I'm very first enough this guy agreed to come on. So I owe him a lot for helping us kick off a, the chain of excellent guests and such we've had. And that guy is Greg Kokar of Stand to Reason. Last time he was here, we were talking about his book, Tactics. And so I know it's about Greg is, he doesn't write as many books as a lot of the others do, but whenever he writes one, it gets a lot of attention. <laughs> and this one is no exception. We are talking about his book, The Story of Reality. But who is he? He holds MA degrees in both projects and philosophy. He's spoken on over 70 university campuses and host his own radio talk show for 26 years defending Christianity worth thinking about. Greg is founder and president of Stand to Reason, STR.org, and serves as adjunct professor of Christian projects at Biola University. So, um, Greg, welcome back to the Deeper Waters podcast. Well, Nick, I am really glad to be talking with you again, and I'd forgotten that we did that one. I knew we did a podcast together, but I'd forgotten it was right at the beginning of your season of podcasts. So I'm I'm thrilled to be back with you. Yeah, I'm thrilled to have you back here. But if my audience doesn't know who you are, they're not familiar with Stand Reason or anything like that, tell us a bit about how you got to be doing what you're doing. Well, um, it's ironic you ask me now because we're three days off of our 24th anniversary for Stand to Reason. So 24 years and three days ago, um, we launched this enterprise. Our goal was to build an organization. And by the way, we certainly didn't expect it to be as big as it's gotten with the footprint that it has. We're thrilled about that. But our goal was just to make our contribution to thoughtful Christianity, to get uh, Christians to think more carefully about their convictions and to engage other people in not only a thoughtful but a gracious way because there are conversations that we were watching between a lot of Christians and uh, non-Christians was on the shrill side. And we wanted to try to 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 help encourage building a certain type of individual, we call it ambassador for Christ, um, that has knowledge, of course, but has tactical wisdom, which we talked about on our last podcast together, and also has the character that will commend the message rather than detract from the message. We wanted the engagements to look more like diplomacy than D-Day. And so now, 24 years later, we've got a good track record, and God has been 
very generous to us uh, to give us lots of opportunity. There's been a couple of books that came down. You're right. I don't write a lot of books, um, but I hope that the ones that I've written, like the relativism book or the tactics book that we talked about last time or this one, the story of reality, will really find its place on a long term in Christian readership. So um, it, hopefully it'll be a few books that last a long time rather than lots of books that don't last very long at all. Mm-hmm. Now, when I pick up this book, The Story of Reality, one of the first things I'm thinking is I open it up and I see this thing about how, well, let's just see how what it covers us, how the world began, how it ends, and everything that important that happens in between. That uh, seems like a rather large-scale claim to be taking on right at the start. Yeah, yeah you're right. And... Um... The key word there is everything important that happens in between. So it's not a book on world history. It's a in well, I know I take that back. In a certain sense, it is a, a book on world history, but not the way most people think of it. It's the world history that really matters. It's the world history from God's perspective. It's uh, it's God's redemptive plan um, for mankind. How the world began. And then there's going to be an ending. And I want you to see the important things that happen in between. And most of what happens in the world is not important. It's activity. I mean, it's significant in a personal level, but it's not important in an eternal sense. And so I was trying to focus in on those things uh, to tell the story broadly of the Christian worldview and in a way that people can grasp it. They could understand it. It's not overly complex. It's not overly theologically um, detailed, I guess, or weighty in one sense. But I did want to cover the main issues in a way that was substantive and adequate to the importance of those issues. So it's, it's, I didn't dumb anything down, but I tried to throw the ball in a sense so that people could, uh, could catch it. And I did it less than 200 pages. So I'm, I'm pretty thrilled about that. Yeah, this is a very quick read in many ways. You could read it in maybe two or three days if you wanted to. Now, something else, Robert, strikes me is you talk about it being the story of reality. And currently some people would say, yeah, but that's the word, story. I mean, Cinderella is a story. <laughs> Peter Pan is a story. Is, is all you're doing giving us just a story? Well, you know, I... I... I use that language on purpose, Nick, and um, the reason is is because I start out by talking about worldviews as a picture of reality, and I use a picture puzzle as a um, as a metaphor to help understand worldviews. First of all, they meant to be a picture of reality. Secondly, this is a picture that has pieces to it, and you have to assemble the pieces in the right way to get the full picture. But then I quickly shift to another another metaphor, another way of talking about it, which I actually think is a very accessible way of talking about it, a good way of talking about it today, and that is a worldview is like a story. Now, when you think about stories, stories have four parts to them. They have beginning, which introduces the main characters and introduces the kind of world that you're in. So if you pick up a book and the first couple lines say something like, um, in a hole in the ground, there lived a hobbit, Okay, well, now you know you're not in, in Kansas anymore, right? You, you, you start 
to the author introduces you to the world that he is going to describe in the story. And um, so they have a beginning. Then something goes wrong. And the rest of the story is about how that, that, that conflict gets resolved. And so you have conflict resolution at the end of the story, and then you have kind of they live happily ever after kind of a resolution to all the loose ends, uh, writers call it uh, denouement, which is just how everything gets tied off at the end. So, so I do think that the Christian account can be told in a story form, but there's one point that I make, and it's what you're getting at here, Nick, uh, right in the beginning of the book, and that is this story does not start out once upon a time. Um, because it wasn't meant to be understood as a myth or a fair, fairy tale, Cinderella, Peter Pan. Um, this is rather um, a, a story about the, the way things actually happened, things that really took place or are going to take place in the future, uh, people um, that really existed in places that really existed. So this is a story that is fact or history mm-hmm not fiction. Now, the key here for me is people getting the point that this is the kind of story that I'm telling. Now, of course, I have to substantiate that claim. I have to give reasons why I think this story is, in fact, the story of reality. That's a different step. But um, I'm, I'm trying, I spent a lot of time at the beginning of the book, the f- whole first section, really, um, which is kind of an introductory section, and that section is simply called reality. And I talk about the confusion people have when they think about religious accounts, um, and I focus on the issue of the true story. And uh, because people think of religion kind of like a, a spiritual fantasy club, they, they they won't say your religion is false. I mean, that would be kind of rude or intolerant, but they don't think it's true either. I mean, not like gravity is true. And so what's really critical for me is and in a sense, I think this is the strength of talking about story. Your impulse, your question is a good one, because when you see the word story, you think, well, this is a fiction. And I am grabbing on that word specifically so I can tell the world through the book that this story is not a fiction. This is a true story. It's a story of the way things actually are. And then try to give some reasons throughout the book why people should take that seriously. So um, this is the story of reality. That's the point of the title. Uh, I think story is an apt metaphor because we are telling a story. It's like, Nick, if you were to write the story of your life, right? right, there's a drama there, you know, all kinds of conflict, conflict resolution, you know, in everybody's life. Um, But it's not meant to be a fairy tale. It's the true story based on a true story. And I think this is what I'm trying to accomplish here. Yeah, I, I like how you have made the reference to Tolkien's work there. It's, yes, I, I caught on to that one immediately. That's yeah. because I can't but think of Tolkien talking to C.S. Lewis and talking about the story of the true myth. For yeah. instance, what if all these other stories were pointing to the true story? Yeah. Well, a myth is meant to tell you something true about the human condition, but in a kind of analogous form. And one of the kind of uh, the insights or it was a is actually a, a um, um, you know, the light went on for Lewis when Tolkien and others suggested that the Christian account does the thing that myth is meant to do. That is, it deals with the deepest things um, that that we have to deal with. Yet at the same time, it's not a 
fictional way of telling us these things. It is a true myth. And I, I think they were onto something when, and certainly that was a powerful way of looking at it for C.S. Lewis and it figured into his conversion. Yeah. And something else I'd like to say about the book, very positive before we get into the contents, Sam, is that, uh, I mean, it could be because you and I know each other where and such, and I've heard you speak on many occasions, but mm-hmm. I don't think that's it's that I think it's just because of the way you write this book is what I would very much call a conversational style. Right. Book. I mean, there, I read many fine academic scholarly books and they're on point to read and such, and I get a lot out of them. But this one, I it almost seemed like I was sitting down and I was talking with you, and I could <laughs> hear you saying every single thing in the book to me. Uh huh. Well, I am so glad to hear you say that, um, Nick, because this was specifically something I had in mind. And as I look at the, what, about 100, over 150 reviews now, just in the last couple months over on Amazon, there's a lot of people who say the same thing. And uh, Jay Warner Wallace said that to me, too. We're close friends, and, and he, the cold case Christianity guy, and he told me, he said, it just sounds, it sounds like you're talking to me. And, and um, this is, this is the reason, look, at I, I went to Mere Christianity, and I used Mere Christianity as kind of a model to me, because I felt that Lewis had the same kind of engagement with the reader in his style of writing Mere Christianity. Um, he conversed with the reader. He just didn't lay facts out like many scholarly books do it. And and, um, and so I, I was really working hard to get that style in my own voice into the text. And, you know, you've listened to a lot of stuff I've done, Nick, and, and so you kind of have an ear for my voice, and I'm glad that you think that that voice came across in the book, because I think that that makes it really readable. I mean, I've had people that reviewed it that, on the Amazon that said they just kept reading and, and they just never put it down. They read all the way to the end and then they wanted to start again because it had that kind of easy, accessible flow to it, like a good conversation with a friend would have. Thank you. Yeah. And uh, I think one more positive thing I'd say about it is, I mean, I do read the big academic books and I think we should that, I, I I could picture, for instance, that, uh, I mean, re- listeners of a show know that Michael Cohen is my father-in-law, and so, yes, I did read his big, big book on the resurrection <laughs> of Jesus. Yeah. His daughter, who I'm married to, will probably never touch that book unless she's moving things around here in my office. Or throw it at you. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But, but I, I could easily picture her, if she wanted to, just sitting down and going through your book, and you say, okay, this is this is simple. I can understand this. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's simple without being simplistic. And maybe you can weigh in here, Nick. But I, I just think that I made reference before that I wanted to tell the basics here, but not in a simplistic way. I want it to be accessible, throw the ball so people can catch it, but still have um theological depth to it. You know, Nancy Piercy, who wrote the wonderful foreword for this book, I'm so indebted to her for the excellent foreword um, she wrote, she did say that, it, that the, in a sense, the ease of reading is, is, um, 
is misleading um, because um, she said, read it slowly. You could e- read it quickly because it moves quickly. But you, you, if you if you read it too quickly, you, you will maybe not catch the depth of the theology that's represented there. So I'm just really gratified that it seems to have accomplished that particular goal that I had in mind, accessibility yet substantive. You know, couldn't that answer the concern of so many preachers that really like to preach what I essentially call fluff in my pulpit over and over. Like, yeah, but if I if I go into deep theology, if I go into apologetics and such, I'm going to have to lose some of my audience because they won't understand it. Yeah, yeah. Well, this is, you know, this goes back to Stand a Reason. We, we started out talking about the organization that, I, that I, I'm involved with. And um, we've, we've realized for a long time that what we do as an organization is we're translators. So we'll take the, the smart guys that you and I both read and, and try to take their information and, and then translate it without losing the substance. Uh, Again, I don't want to say put it down at the on the lower shelf because, frankly, as you know, a lot of stuff can't go that low. You know, it's too substantive. At the same time, we do want to throw the ball so people can catch catch it. We want to make it uh, accessible. Well, let's start looking into a book. Some naturally, you won't have time to cover everything, but then that's mm-hmm. why you buy the book anyway. <laughs> you you sum it up in five words. The story of a war can be told in five words, and that's a Pretty big claim, but those words are God, man, Jesus, cross, resurrection. You right. think that's all you need? Well, what I would, I think that's all I need for the task that I had in mind. Okay, and so um, what I was trying to do is give um, the story of reality. And when you have a story, of course, you have to have a plot line, and you and the plot line represents the most important. Pardon me, the most important things that happen in the order that take place, also kind of laying over that that form that I described earlier of beginning, conflict, conflict resolution, and final restoration or ending, okay? Uh, all stories have that. And so those five words actually represent that. Let me just give you the story quickly. I could, you know, it's fairly simple if I give you the overview. The most important things that happen in the order they took place. So you start with God, and God created everything, including man, to be in friendship with him, but man got himself in a heap of trouble, and so God initiates a rescue operation by becoming a man himself in the person of Jesus. So now we got God, man, Jesus. Jesus does something Throughout his life, the way he lives his life, and also um, through his death on a Roman cross—that's your fourth word—that mm-hmm. will that it, it provides a solution to the problem. And what we decide about what Jesus did in his life will determine what happens to each one of us at the final resurrection. So there it is: God, man. Jesus, cross, resurrection. God, the beginning, final resurrection at the end, and everything deeply important that happens in between. What I like about those five words, Nick, is that um, for those who are theologically minded, you're already thinking of theological categories, like systematic theology, like theology proper, God, um, uh, biblical anthropology, doctrine of man, Christology, the doctrine of Jesus, soteriology, the doctrine of the cross, 
eschatology, the final things. See, those things are in there. I don't use those fancy words, obviously, but there I'm giving substantive theological information, but I've organized it in a way that anyone can remember. In fact, some of your listeners already got the five things because the logical order. When I taught this at my church, (laughs) my daughter, my youngest daughter was six years old and she was sitting in the front row ticking off the five things on her fingers from her own memory, because she had learned it quite easily, as I was doing the teaching, God, man, Jesus, cross, resurrection. So I can take that and use that as an outline in my own mind. Anytime I'm trying to explain Christianity, written large, not starting with Jesus, but starting with the beginning, Jesus is in the middle. And Jesus doesn't make much sense without the beginning parts that, that show that he's an answer to the problem, the conflict that's created. So I can use those as an outline to explain to people, and I can go as in much detail as I want in any given area as I think is necessary. Working with kids, you, work, you lay a foundation and you keep it really simple. You Talking to adults, then you, you, you can use the same outline with Bible study class, sermon series, absolutely same outline, just go into more detail. It's, it's got tremendous flexibility. All you have to remember are those five words, God, man, Jesus, cross, resurrection. That's the outline of the book, and that's the outline of the story of reality. And well, before I ask you something about that, I can mind when you're listening to the Deeper Waters podcast, we got Greg Coker on this week talking about his book, The Story of Reality. But if you're here next week, we are going to be talking about one of those big academic tomes, in fact. Uh, Craig Blomberg is going to be back with us next week. We're going to be talking about the historical reliability of the New Testament. large book he wrote probably in the past year or so. Good light reading, only about 800 pages or so if you want it. So, But now let's get back to Greg Coco talking about the story of reality. Now, I... I noticed you talk about conflict, and I think this is something interesting because some people seem to think one of the greatest defeaters of Christianity is the problem of evil. Uh-huh. But in reality, the problem of evil is essential for Christianity. Well, it's not just essential for Christianity. It's essential for any worldview. What, whatever story, and they're competing stories. I mean, there's the materialism story, you know, in the beginning were the particles. You know, that's the atheist's worldview. There's the Eastern religion story. In the beginning was mind, and in the end was mind, and it was all mind. You know, after that, that's part of a story. You have all kinds of other religious stories. But one thing everyone knows is true, is that something is wrong with the world. From the youngest, from the first, is the earliest year, a person begins thinking about life and things until they die, no matter what period of history, no matter where on the globe they happen to live, they all know that something's wrong. And so we're trying to figure out what that is. And by the way, the thing that's wrong is moral which is why this issue characterizes itself or is formulated often as the problem of evil. So Christians are not the only ones strapped with this problem. This is the way the world is, okay? Um, And everybody knows it. That means that if you're going to adopt a story of some sort, a worldview or a religion of some sort, 
if you're going if your view is going to be ac- adequate it has got to deal with the single most pressing issue that everyone is aware of and that's the problem of evil what's the problem and how do we fix it okay um, and and christianity gives a characterization that first of all makes sense of the issue now why do i say that um, because there are some worldviews and I just mentioned two of them that can't don't even have the resources to make sense of the issue. Uh, one of those is the materialism story. I call that matterism, which holds that only matter exists. Well, look at if only matter exists, then there are no morals <laughs> in an objective sense. There's no morality in the, in the, in an ultimate sense. But you have to have morality in an ultimate sense in order to have the problem of evil in the world. So if you're a materialist, you can't complain about the problem of evil because your worldview doesn't even make room for it, which it strikes me is a weakness of the worldview because it can't even make coherent the problem that everyone is aware of. The same thing is true of mindism, what I call mindism, which is Eastern pantheistic monism. A lot of New Age folk are into this view, and East, some uh, some Eastern religions hold to this view. And, and, and uh, the secret, for instance. Pardon me? The secret, for instance. Yeah, the secret would be a version of that, and I I talk about that a little bit in the story of reality. But the point I'm making here, and I'm glad you let in with this here on the problem of evil, is um, what the Christian story can do is the Christian story can make sense of a problem that everyone is aware of, but many worldviews can't even begin to address and actually must deny. Um, Not only can we make sense of it, But we have a solution. Remember I said, beginning conflict, conflict, resolution, and ending? The the, the space between the conflict and the conflict resolution is the bulk of any story. And we're in the middle of our story right now. Mm-hmm. And and so there's, uh, you know, go back to Tolkien. You know, if you pick up the Lord of the Rings, you get halfway through the series. And, man, the orcs are going crazy. And that eye is doing its thing. And the fellowship is broken up. And you're saying, what a mess, man. What a lousy story. Well, keep reading. You know, you're not to the end yet. And we in history right now are in the middle of the story. And people can properly and understandably complain about the problem of evil but then we have to ask the question, which view of reality first can make sense of the problem and second can provide a solution? And this is why I think the problem of evil is on our side. And it is not the problem for the Christian story that people think it is. It, it seems strikes me about the whole atheist objection of the problem of evil, because if there is a problem, we all agree there is. It seems that God is the only one that can do anything about it. But uh-huh. with atheism, you remove God, and the problem is still right there. It is still exactly the same. That's, That's right. Where, what are you going to do about it? That's right. I was always mystified, on one hand, about people who are atheists because of the problem of evil. and you know They experience something in their own life where they see it. And look, I understand it. I, I can't believe in God there's evil in the world. And there's a, on, a, on one level, I understand that. On another level, and I do talk about this in the early chapters of the story of reality, on another level, I don't know what that solves for the atheist, because the atheist is still strapped with the problem of evil in the real world, but he hasn't gotten rid of the problem because he got rid of God. He's only gotten rid of one potential way of solving the problem. 
he's still stuck with the problem, but now he's only got the resources of materialism uh, to to deal with it, and those are pretty spare resources to address the problem of evil. Now let's talk about Manson, because it, we've got an interesting contrast here, because, I mean, God creates man, and yeah, we have God up there. I mean, ultimately, it's his story, and we need a good full view of God. But once we have man there, then nah, man, he's not purely material, right. as in a scientific sense, but at the same time, going with, against Eastern, he's not purely deity either. Right, right. Well, he's uh, well, the point I make in, in the book is that well, the first thing that's obvious about humans is that they're physical, they're creatures, and they're creaturely, which means they're not any kind of god at all. They're they're contingent. They're 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 not divine. They're they're not little gods. They're they're beings. Okay, so, but they're not junk either. Some people want to go on either side. Either man's a, a god, or he's he's just cosmic junk, which is I think what happens on the materialistic view of the world. Uh, no, uh, on our story, um, we have a view that is consistent with our common sense notions about reality as it applies to man. Man is a creature, but man is more than a creature. He is above the rest of the creatures. There is something beautiful about human beings. Now, and this is why we have moral obligations to humans that are not sustained towards other creatures or other things. At least on my view, some people are a little confused about that nowadays, but I think most people get this right. And this is why we have human rights, because humans have rights in virtue of being human. Okay, Now, our story explains that. It says that man is physical, but also non-physical. There is an invisible self we call a soul which isn't what makes humans unique, because animals have souls too. That's The story teaches that. It's the kind of soul that humans have that makes them unique. They're made in the image of God. That is, there is something about us. I, don't, I guess I hesitate to say God-like, because again, I don't want to be the little God's uh, thing here. But I, at the same time, we are, we, are, we are, we bear the image of God. There's a kinship that we have with God. And this, kin, this image of God not only gives us our internal beauty, our real substantive beauty, what, what makes us absolutely special, every single one of us, regardless of our physical state or our mental state or how young and old or beautiful or skilled, oh, it doesn't matter. We are all beautiful. However, and this this is what makes us absolutely special, and it is also what makes it possible for us to be in a friendship with God, which is what God desired in the beginning, intended in the beginning. God wanted us to be in friendship with him. So now we have God creating everything, including man, which is the most important thing in the creation, in a very special way to be unique, to be in friendship with God. But Man was created in such a way, and I, I go into some detail about about this issue, so that he could he could grow in goodness, so he could enjoy the kind of happiness that God experiences. But in order for him to be the kind of creature that could grow in goodness, he would have to be a creature that would, had the potential had the, that had genuine moral freedom. 
he could choose the good or he could choose the bad. And unfortunately, man did not use his freedom well. He used it not to sustain the friendship with with God, but to rebel against God. He wanted to, to do his own thing. And when he broke faith with the Father, when when our original parents rebelled against the God, the sovereign of the universe, as I put it in the book, they broke the world. Mm-hmm. They didn't just break themselves. They didn't just break their relationship with God. They broke the whole world. And this is where the problem of evil comes from. It comes from this primal rebellion against God and the, the rebellion that has continued ever since. So in our worldview, in our story, we can make sense of why things are broken, but we also can give hope for the future because things weren't always broken. That isn't the way God originally made things. They can be fixed, but as you pointed out, they can't be fixed by man. They have to be fixed by God. Yeah, and we can talk a bit more about God next one when we're talking about Jesus, because uh, maybe I'm mistaken, but I think in Christian theology there's a little bit of a connection between those two. Christian theology what? Say that again, please. Maybe in... I'm mistaken, but in Christian theology, I think there's a little bit of a connection between God and Jesus. (laughs) Yeah, a little bit. Uh, Here's something to think about. Our story starts like this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Okay, that's our opening line. Okay, if you look at the beginning of Jesus' story, you've got something that's very similar. It says, in the beginning, that would be the same beginning that we were just talking about. Okay, in the beginning was the word and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So there's your connection there. Um, He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, that is the one identified in John chapter 1 there, the opening verses, as the Word. All things came into being through Him, the Word, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Okay, so what we have here. The beginning of our story is God is the uncreated creator. In the beginning of Jesus' story, the word, which we know in verse 14, is the one that becomes flesh and dwells among us. That's Jesus. The word is the uncreated creator. So the one called the word is the same one that we see in the very beginning of the story. Now, there is an Interesting little distinction we see there, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So there is some difference, even though they're the same nature. And this is where you get the beginnings of our characterization of what we call the doctrine of the Trinity. Two different persons, same nature. But the key thing to remember is the way God decided to fix the problem and to rescue man is to become a human himself. In our story, human beings don't rescue themselves. God rescues us. That is absolutely unique in all the stories. Only in the Christian story is God the ultimate, final, complete, total, and adequate rescuer of man who cannot rescue himself. Yeah, I, I think we could also say that uh, in Christianity, Jesus is one who is absolutely essential. That I mean, Islam places a lot in the history of Muhammad, but you know, you could put just 
anyone else, but you could say, well, Muhammad turns the, the job down. Well, let's call the next guy here. Yeah, and he right, could do the right. same thing. In Buddha, Buddhism, you don't need a Buddha for You just have the teachings. Yeah. Hinduism, you can debate if Krishna existed, but you can still have Hinduism. But Christianity right. is unique. That's right. Without Jesus, there is no Christianity. Without those other leaders, as you pointed out, since the, the religion is based on something other than the leader, the leader's just a mouthpiece, essentially. You can have the religion without the leader. Without Jesus, there's no Christianity. Because Jesus, Christianity is based on who he is and what he did. And that's the person and the work of Christ. It isn't based on his teaching. You know, people got this all mixed up, I think, um, Nick. Um, there, there's a huge emphasis on uh, in culture about Jesus teaching about the poor and helping us all get along and restoring social justice. And look, he had some things to say about that. But um, a lot of people don't realize that the Apostle John, when he wrote his final account of the life of Jesus, the most sublime characterization of the person and the work of Christ, left out everything <laughs> pertaining to the poor and social justice. There's not a word of it in the Gospel of John. Why did he do that? Because that wasn't the reason that Jesus came. Uh, the reason Jesus came wasn't to restore social justice. It was to give his life a ransom for many. Those were his words. When he talked about why he came, this is why he came. He came to make a trade. And, uh, and, and that is absolutely vitally important. You know, it's interesting at the at the trial, a lot of people don't realize this, and it's a fair question to ask of those who might reject, who believe in the Bible, but might reject the unique divinity of Jesus of Nazareth. Ask the question, why was he executed? Yeah. We, we have the trial details there, and here's the reason he was executed, pretty straightforward. Um, he was asked a question, are you the Christ, which would be the Messiah, the Son of God? And Jesus said, you have said it yourself. And that was the grounds for his execution, not claiming to be Messiah because they expected a Messiah. It was claiming to be the son of God, which is a which is making himself equal, pardon me, equal with God. And that was blasphemy. And that's what got him executed. So Jesus was not executed for what he did or what he taught. He was executed for who he claimed to be. Mm -hmm. Well, I like to mind everyone that you're listening to the Deeper Waters podcast, and everything we do here is listener-supported. And if you want to support us, I would so much appreciate that. I mean, we are a fledgling ministry. We're in great need of your support. You just go to our website of uh, deeperwatersapologetics.com. There's a link on the side. Help support the work of Deeper Waters Christian Ministries. There's a link in there. And you click on that, it takes you to Risen Jesus. That's the ministry of my in-laws, Mike and Debbie Lacona. You make a donation there, and then you get in touch with them, or me, or Allie, and say, hey, I made a donation. I want to go to Nick Peters. I want to go to Deeper Waters. And we'll make sure the word gets to them, and they will take that donation and put it to us. It will be tax deductible. Because if, if you don't notify us, they're just going to think it's a Risen Jesus donation. Now, you can also go to the e-store on Amazon and buy some books I've co-written or written. Written includes, where it's just limited right now, to A Creed for the Ages, The Apostles Creed, and Today's Christian. Co-written include books like Defining and Inerrancy, Groundless, God and Natural Disasters, and others. And 
Min, Greg was just talking about how everyone is beautiful. Well, your woman in your life needs to know she's beautiful too. And Ooh. I'm not sure if you've noticed this, but jewelry is a very good way to spread that message. So we've got a jewelry store. And huh. you go there and you buy whatever you would want to buy for the lady in your life. It might be your wife. It might be your mom from Mother's Day. It might be something for your daughter. It might be a girlfriend that you hope will be your wife someday. But uh, you go, you buy whatever you want. 25% of what you purchase goes towards deeper waters. Price doesn't change. We just get the donation still. And just let me know about it so I can get in touch with our salesperson. And she can say, okay, I'll set it aside. And guys, like I always like to tell you, if you're buying a special for a lady in your life, just remember you can do this to make up for that screw-up that you recently did with her, or <laughs> you can buy it as insurance that screw-up that I know you're going to do in the future. <laughs> we speak from experience, don't we, Greg? Yes, you're a wise man, Nick. Hey, let me add a word to that, too. I, I, I've enjoyed our conversations together. I see they were lined up with the people that you uh, interview. Um, you have you do quality work there and uh, the people who listen, you know, should participate in that. I mean, it's pretty straightforward. You didn't ask me to say this, but I'm just going to say it. You know, it says in Galatians uh, that let him who is taught share all good things with him who teaches. Nick, you're teaching. Those who are listening to your podcast are the one that are receiving from you. And I just want to encourage them uh, to think about becoming a regular partner with with Nick and Deeper Waters and following um, the procedure Nick mentioned a moment ago of how to to, uh, participate and partner with his ministry. If you listen to the podcast on a regular basis, and I hope you do because he's got really good people on on board and – well, then you need to contribute on a regular basis as well. Anyway, that's my recommendation. Mm-hmm. Help Nick out, keep deep, Deeper Waters going, and he'll continue to be able to be there for you with these great podcasts. Thank you, Greg. And if you can't do that the time being, at least consider going on iTunes and leaving a positive review so I can know you're out there. And if you have some like a, a guest idea you have on the show, get in touch with me. I'll see what I can do about them and such. Now, Greg... Do you have an organization you'd like to see people donate to? Well, yeah, Standard Reason is a very similar situation that you're facing, Nick. But like I said, we've been around for 24 years. And if you're – here's what I want to suggest. If your listeners are uh, regular listeners with you, they should go – they should give to you first, Deeper Waters first, because that's where they're getting fed uh, with this kind of stuff. If they go to Standard Reason – and find that that's a kind of a helpful watering hole for them, too, and they hang around there and use a lot lot of our stuff, well, then they may want to consider giving to str.org as well. Um, But only if they find what we're doing um, to be useful. And um, so we always want to give before we ask to receive, and that's the very same thing, Nick, that you've been doing with Deeper Waters. You're giving first before you ask to receive from those who benefit from what you do. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, let's get back to the story of reality here. And by the way, to donate, they go to str.org, right? Right. Okay. Now we come to the cross. Now, I'm not sure if you've seen it yet, but my wife and I just this past in this week saw the Case for Christ movie. That's yeah, out. I have seen it. I have seen it, and I really, really liked it. Uh, I was so 
happy that there wasn't a false move in the whole movie. There was never a line that said, what is your heart telling you to do? Oh, yes. <laughs> and it was just the drama was fabulous. The acting was first rate. Um, I guess it did do so well at the box office can, compared to some of the other movies that were not up to its quality. I just encourage every Christian to go there and to bring a, a friend that they've been talking with, because the case that's made in that movie um, about Lee Strobel's life is uh, is very compelling, and there is not an embarrassing moment in the whole movie. You don't have to be afraid to take any friends to that film. Yeah. Now, one scene, and it has him talking to this priest back when he's a skeptic, and seeing Jesus on the cross and saying, well, why was he on there? I mean, if he was God, don't you think he could just get himself down from there? And, you know, that's something that a lot of people would think about that thing. So what is it about the cross that's so important? Well, in order to understand the cross properly, you have to understand the fall properly. What went wrong to begin with? And what went wrong is human beings were in friendship with God and properly under his authority. So it was a family kind of relationship, but it was more than that. He was still their sovereign. He was still their king. And they were in his kingdom, for goodness sake. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So you have God creating a domain. You have a king creating a dom. You have a kingdom. Right there in the first line. And what man chose, chose to do is to rebel against God. Now, a whole bunch of things happened when they rebelled against their sovereign. One is they unplugged themselves from God in a certain sense. Their spiritual life were drained out. And secondly, they became slaves to Satan, who they chose to obey. They became slaves to their own fallen, corrupted nature, which the story calls the flesh. And they also became indebted to God. They broke God's law. And now they had, I guess a certain way of putting it is, hell to pay as a result. So, yeah, and so that's just some of the problem. There were more details, but that you can begin to see the terrible circumstance that man is in that he cannot rescue himself from. So how, how does he get out? Well, he's got to be rescued from slavery. That's slavery to Satan. He's got to also have his debt paid well, what's the debt? Well, the debt is pretty big because it is a result of, of disobeying the, the moral sovereign of the universe, a morally perfect being, okay? That's a huge debt load, all right? Actually, it's a debt man owes and must pay, but he cannot not pay. Um, man's got to be rescued from slavery, but he's got to be rescued from someone who is not also a slave himself. And maybe maybe your listeners are beginning to get a picture of the nature of the problem requires a certain kind of solution. And this is where the idea of Jesus being the only way comes in. And um, what needs to be done is a free man, that is a person who's never sinned and therefore is not a slave to sin or a slave to Satan, a champion must come in and rescue man, but also be capable of paying the penalty or the debt that man owes. And this is why God became a man, because a man owes the debt, but only God can pay it. And so it must be paid by 
the God man, which, by the way, is an evidence of God uh, when when it, it says, like in the famous Bible verse, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, etc. How is giving Jesus an evidence of God's love? You know, if God is just beating up some other guy to give you forgiveness, that might be a sign of the other guy's love, Jesus. But how is it an example of God's love? Only if Jesus is God and takes the punishment himself. So God is the one who suffers in human form. And that's exactly what happens. Jesus could have gotten off that cross easily. But if he did, then he wouldn't have accomplished his mission. Mm. His mission was to rescue man. And that required living a perfect life. So he's not a slave himself. And then paying the penalty for man's crimes against God, which he did, which is why at the end he says it's finished, it's paid, it's done for, he covered the debt, and he needed to defeat death, which he did at the resurrection. Mm -hmm. All of these things were necessary, which is why Jesus is the only way of salvation. Simply put, Nick, Jesus is the only way of salvation because he's the only one who solved the problem. And this is a very important point I develop in the story of reality. Now, I like how in your answer you, in fact, said, I can't wonder if it's intentional or not. Maybe it's just a reflex. You've been doing it so long. You said the very next word in the chain, in fact, and something I like about the book is that the final word wasn't heaven. It was resurrection. Now, that's I think right. that's a big difference that people need to get. That's right, because everybody doesn't go to heaven. That's why the next big event for the history of the world is the final judgment. And that's when ultimate justice is done. You know, I think a lot of people are rightly concerned about bad people who get away with murder, so to speak. That's a phrase we use to describe not just people literally getting away with murder, but getting away with serious crimes that they ought to be punished for. What we don't realize is that the bad, the quote unquote bad guys are not the only ones who get away with murder, so to speak. We do, too. That means there's going to be a day of reckoning. For the bad guys, that's good news, but there's going to be a day of reckoning for us, too, and that's the bad news because actually we're part of the bad guys. And even though we may not, you know, people say, I'm no Hitler, to which I respond, well, that's good. What was enough? But you're no Jesus either. And Hitler's not the standard. Jesus is. So at the final resurrection, every human life is going to be assessed to see if it met, if it passes the test. No human life will do that because every single person has sinned against God in rebellion many, many, many times. And there will be punishment appropriate for their crimes unless Jesus has taken the punishment for them. And the, the names of these people are written in a different book, uh, and that's called the Book of Life. This is in Revelations 20. Anyone's name who is not found in the book of life will be judged by their own crimes and found wanting and will be banished from God's presence forever in a place of torment, punishment for their sins. Everyone whose name is found in the book of life are just as guilty as the others, but they have Jesus who has rescued them, the kinship redeemer who has paid the price to give them eternal life. And so the final note 
in the in the story of reality, the final resurrection will end one of two ways, either with perfect justice, that is, with punishment for everything that anyone's done wrong, and God misses nothing, of course, or perfect mercy, which is forgiveness for everything someone has done wrong, and God misses nothing. And for those who have received the mercy that God provides, they will live in the kind of world their hearts have always yearned for, Mm -hmm. the perfect world in perfect friendship with the Father. Mm -hmm. And I think we're going to add in, ironically, those who live in rebellion against God and such, they will also live in the world their hearts have yearned for. Yeah, (laughs) Well, in one sense, that's an ironic twist there. Uh, Those in rebellion are rebelling because they don't want God in their life. I don't want God. I want to do it my way. And so there's a certain sense in which God is saying to them, all right, have it your way. Be gone. Depart from me. And but they they are not going to get (laughs) the kind of uh, freedom that they hope for, because being apart from God, since we are made for him, will mean ruin and misery forever, and that's what they will have. Yeah, I I, I really like the point on resurrection, because I, I wrote a blog on this this morning that God can often seem to be like an afterthought to many of us, but you can hear a, a call to salvation at the end of a sermon on Sundays, and Jesus kind of mentioned, yeah, this is the guy who does it and such, and the whole goal is, so you can go to heaven when you die. As if, once you go to heaven, your story is done, when very the Christian view is that resurrection is the story, because that's the ultimate defeat of evil. Right. That's right. Uh, This is what I think is really important when you look at the whole span of the Christian story is we talked earlier about the problem of evil and uh, we and and which story of reality, which worldview can make sense of the problem. And we talked that about some can't, but Christianity can. Our whole story is about the problem of evil. But the second issue is which story solves it. And the Christian story does. It solves it with mercy and justice as appropriate and, um, and, and a recreation of the whole world which, in which there will be no evil anymore. And, um, and of course, this is the kind of, this is the kind of um, uh, as I mentioned, the world that our hearts have always yearned for. Uh, Lewis says it this way, the door that we have been knocking on all of our lives will finally be opened. What a wonderful way of putting it. What do you say to someone who's reached the end of a story and may say, you know, it's a good story, but I'm still skeptical of a story? Well, um, I point out throughout the story, uh, I give reasons why people should take it seriously as the story of reality. It has predictive power or it has uh, explanatory power. For example, we have the resurrection of Jesus, which is a powerful evidence that the story is actually true. And I have a chapter called Four Facts, which your father-in-law has contributed some idea. In fact, Michael Lacona actually read that chapter for me uh, just to make sure I wasn't making any missteps. So I appreciated his contribution. The point is, though, that we are, I'm willing to give reasons why 
uh, people should take the story for the kind of story it claims to be the story of reality. That's the nature of apologetics, to give a rationale for that. However, if people at the end still are not convinced, I, I have two suggestions. I think people should ask the question of themselves, what are, realistically, what are the alternatives? All right. Is atheism a realistic alternative? Does it do a better job of explaining the world as we discover it? I think that I think that 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 far from the case, atheism does nothing to explain the world as we experience it. Um, Or maybe some other religion does a better job of explaining it. So you have to think in terms of alternatives. Okay, may I'm not fully convinced here, but how convinced are you of any of the other available alternatives? Okay, that's one thing. Um, every view is going to have its problems. You're not going to be able to tie off the loose ends. The second thing is, there uh, I have given, in a certain sense, a mo- made a modest case in favor of the truthfulness of the story of reality in the book, The Story of Reality. But there's a whole lot more that can be done. And, and your podcast, Stand to Reasons Materials, and uh, all the authors that you interview on your podcast, these are all resources that give more of the hardcore evidential information why God exists and the Bible's reliable and Jesus existed and is who he claims to be and all these other things. So if people need to shore up the evidence, there is plenty, believe me, plenty of material out there. There is nothing like Christianity in terms of having substantial evidence in favor of its worldview. Nothing at all. Well. Yeah. Meg, I'd like to thank you for coming on. If anyone's interested, the story of reality, it's available at uh, Barnes & Noble. And I should point out Zondervan is the one who publishes this, so I'll give your right. thanks to them. Barnes & Noble has it on paperback for nine eighty, Nook for four ninety nine, and an audio for fourteen ninety nine. Amazon has it on paperback for eight seventy nine, Kindle for four ninety nine, audio for sixteen ninety five, and an MP three C D for nine ninety seven. Mm-hmm. By the way, Nick, I uh, I read the audio myself, so I read my own book here in the story of reality, just so people know. So it really is like having a conversation with you. Um, storyofreality.com is another place that they can go, and they're going to get some extras there if they want to go there. The storyofreality.com. And I just really appreciate the time talking with you, Nick, and showcasing this book. I, I actually think that there's going to be a lot of people who are going to read this book, and for them, they will understand Christianity in a way they never have before. So, as Christians or non Christians, they're going to see it in an entirely new, new light. Mm hmm. So, Greg, do you have a blog or website where people can get in touch with you if they want to find out more? Well, I'd say just go to str.org. We have a blog there, and it's a very well-known God blog. I don't I'm not the one who makes the contributions there. We have a, a, a larger team that makes contributions there. So Stand to Reason is much bigger than just me. Yeah. We have uh, uh, thousands of pages on our website. We have over a thousand videos on our website that I and other team makers have made short vignettes that will help people with lots of stuff. Mm-hmm. Well, do you have any final thoughts you'd like to leave with the Deeper Waters audience today? Well, just the one I mentioned before that I think – one of the difficulties for Christians is they've never seen the big picture. Their their puzzle, back to that metaphor, their puzzle is a pile of pieces, and they have never 
put the puzzle together in a coherent form before. And the purpose of this book is to put the, the big picture together so that followers of Jesus never get lost in the details again, which will help them understand their own story, but will also make it easier for them to communicate their story to others effectively. That's what I want them to think of. I hope if they have any doubts at all, go to go to the uh, Amazon website and read some of the reviews. Um, and they can take other people's word for it instead of just ours. Well, Greg, I'd like to thank you for coming on here again and hopefully we'll see you back here again sometime. Well, I, I hope so too. Th- and thank you for your hard, wi- your hard work, Nick, on, on all that you do on that program. And just another encouragement for your listeners to support Deeper Waters. Well, I'd like to remind you all that next week we're going to have Craig Blomberg coming up back on talking about his book, The Historical Reliability of the New Testament. For now, I'm Nick Peters, and I'm signing off. <laughs> <laughs>